Hello, and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Deeply Technical series. Hi, I'm Corey Martin, a customer solutions architect at Heroku. We're here to talk about legacy software, which, according to the internet, is software that's overdue for a spa day. Joining me with a much better definition is Joe Leo, CEO of Def Method, a software consultancy in New York. Joe's worked on many legacy projects, and we're going to talk to him all about it. Joe, welcome to Codish. Thanks, Corey. It's great to be here. So... We're here to talk about legacy software. And first, I want to start with your definition. What is legacy software? My, de- my definition of legacy software is any software that you are not writing right now. <laughs> um, and I kind of, I like this definition uh, because it removes the stigma from it. You know, if you, if you submitted a PR yesterday and it was merged into production, congratulations, it is now legacy code. Huh. So it's not necessarily negative. No, definitely not. Uh, We've all written legacy code, um, and we all will continue to write code that will become legacy. That's good to know. So what is an example then of a legacy system? It seems pretty broad. What's one that you've seen that has screamed legacy to you? Well, that's true. Um, It's a broad definition. Um, We, you know, because we work in the services industry uh, of software, we tend uh, to look at legacy software as, you know, software that we didn't write. So, you know, a legacy system is simply one that somebody else has built um, and has maintained or is maintaining. And they are now, you know, giving us the opportunity to, to jump in, look at it, add, um, improve, uh, etc. So in your work with legacy software, do you find it's frequently within large um, non-technical companies or product companies or both? It's definitely both. Uh, Legacy software is everywhere. And, you know, to the extent that people attach some feelings to legacy software, sometimes it can connote a a large system or system that's been around for 10 plus years. I don't necessarily subscribe to that because... The fact is that software changes so fast that um, the tools and even the approach you use to constructing software could be made obsolete in a matter of months, in which case yeah. it's, it's important to look at it as something that is evolving and something that you need to constantly take care of and, and uh, keep healthy. In your role, you're often brought in to say, improve a legacy system, or address some problems with it. Um, Let's play this out and say I work at a company and you're called in to help us out. Um, How do we know when we should call you, when the system needs help? There's a couple of things. One is it's, it's really hard to ask for help in this industry. And some, in some ways that's, that's just a business problem. So one thing that's true about Deaf Method is that we are often, though not always, called in to provide, you know, some something that sounds innocuous. Like, hey, we need some extra engineers to help us build a new feature or 
give us some extra engineers because we're scaling very quickly. And while all of that may be true, I think it's really hard from a CTO's perspective or from a key stakeholder's perspective to go to the business and advocate for dollars when the dollars are needed strictly for rehabilitating a system that may be unhealthy. Mm. And there's because there's a stigma there. It's all of a sudden you have to explain to non-technical people some very technical things. And it's really easy for that conversation to get turned around into why isn't it healthy, right? You, you know, it was your job to keep this thing up and running and, and successful um, forever. And so why would we need to bring in anybody else? Um, which really is unfortunate because every system needs help. <laughs> um, you know, no, no software program ever has been released without bugs. Sometimes those bugs get fixed really quick and dirty. And so there needs to be some, some love that goes into going back and, and rebuilding something. New business features are actually the biggest driver of legacy code that can be hard to maintain because it can sometimes be easier to bolt on a solution in a quick way rather than going back and planning and viewing the entire architecture and looking for the best way to add a new feature. So there are lots of reasons people get into this, um, into this situation. Um, but suffice it to say that when deaf method gets called, typically we're getting called not specifically for help with the code base. And so we have to look a little deeper to see, well, is our help needed on the code base or do they really just need staff augmentation? Say a company calls you and says, we need more bodies, like mm -hmm. you were saying, it's often the initial ask. Mm -hmm. How do you get them from that to acknowledging the real problems that the software might have that they need help with? Many times we do our diligence. So it starts there, right? Um, we acknowledge that a any system that has been up and running for some sub substantial amount of time has been successful, right? So developers have come, have come in, engineers, architects, product managers, business people have come together to build a product that is successful um, and has achieved some measure of success or else we wouldn't be there. There'd be no money. We wouldn't be able to, to go in and, and do anything. Right. So if we approach it with that amount of respect, then we're able to look at it and say, okay, how can we provide value? And so sometimes that starts with a simple code audit if it's a small project. If it's a larger project, it may start with, you know, it could be one of our developers that is just uh, sitting down, mm -hmm. working with an engineer on the team to try to do something simple, build a new feature, sure. um, resolve a bug. And a lot of times we do this up front and we start to cull some of the things that are really issues with the system. Um, and you know, honestly, we just have really frank, candid feedback for the people that are requesting our presence to say, yes, we, we want to come in and help you. Yes, we think we can make positive progress. Here is what we think we need to do in order to make that positive progress. So you said sometimes one of the first steps is sitting alongside an engineer that's already on the team, looking through the software, et cetera, maybe having some frank conversations about it. Say I'm, in, say I'm an engineer on that team. How do I first meet you? And what are our initial conversations like? Um, I think these days you wouldn't meet me, unfortunately. Oh, right. Of course. You're the CEO. I should say one of your team. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. So it's somebody on my team. And, um, you know, but that's important for a couple of reasons. One is that I don't write code every single day uh, like I used to. And, uh, and we really need to build trust with the team. And the way to do that is by having one of our engineers demonstrate themselves to be capable of adding meaningfully to the system that you have been building and maintaining all along. Mm. So the type of interactions that happen, we start with easy questions about process because processes are about people and people will always lead us to the technical problems. Um, and so typically a conversation can start with, you know, how do you gather requirements? Um, mm -hmm. Who does acceptance? Where's the, the staging environment, right? And those kinds of things, uh, or even what's your cadence? How often do you release? Um, yeah. A question like that, you know, is, is process oriented uh, at the surface level, but underneath has a lot of technical underpinnings. If, um, if they're releasing to production once a month, you can ask why, um, yeah. you know, or if you ask, okay, well, what's it like to release? You should start, you know, then you could say, well, what, what does it take to release? And the answer really should be, well, we run this command, right? There should be a single button or a single command that does a deploy. Um, if that's not the case, we can ask, uh, we can ask why, right? And we can just start to dig into it a little bit. And again, these, you know, this isn't an, an interrogation. Um, you know, our company doesn't run perfectly and we don't expect other companies to run perfectly. We expect there to be issues, but we've seen a lot of different issues and we've, and we've helped to fix them. And so, you know, a, a brief kind of frank conversation in the beginning, um, and especially with an engineer or a PM that's on the team, that's low level, that's, um, and by low level, I mean like building the software every day, not just talking sure. about it. Um, those folks typically are really honest with us, right? They'll tell us where the issues are um, because they want it to get better, you know, as much or more than we do. So you're working with the existing team, you've established a level of trust, they know that, you know, your intentions are to help improve the software. How do you ultimately evaluate what needs to change? And how do you communicate that? You can always improve a code base, um, no matter what, that doesn't mean that those changes are needed right now. So a big part of this is understanding where the system is now and how safe we feel pushing something into production, right? How safe we feel pushing a, a new feature into production. And so the way we evaluate how safe we feel is seeing, are there any automated tests? If so, where are they? Um, is there a CI CD pipeline? You know, where is it? How do we run it? Um, how do we evaluate the feedback? And then is there a staging environment that exactly mirrors production, right? So if we have those things in place, then we can start to say, okay, this system, which is legacy and by definition is imperfect, um, we can make some reasonable assumptions that we can get code out the door in some manner and feel safe about it. If any of those things are missing, that's where we start digging in. And it's not our engineer's job, by the way, to say, well, we can't do anything unless you fix this. That's really that's really the engagement manager's job. It could be my job. It could be um, on a large project. It could be a product manager's job. Um, that way, you know, we're we're not pointing fingers at anybody. We're just saying, in order for us to be effective in our work, we need to be able to have these things in place. So, say that you find a lot of important and necessary changes that you recommend, but 
the budget's not there or the amount of time you've been given is not there. How do you deal with that? So I think we're crossing into a really important topic um, and my staff has come up with a way of, of delineating or separating these, these different kinds of projects. So there's, there's legacy software, um, which can encompass almost anything. And we call that brownfield software. Uh, mm. There's greenfield software, which most people are familiar with. That's, you know, brand new code on a new project or an existing project, but it's um, writing something from scratch. Brownfield is anything that's legacy. And then we also designate a category called minefield, which is um, projects that really are struggling in some critical way. And we don't feel that we can make a change to the production environment without without considerable risk that we will um, trigger a mine, right? So wow. bring a server down, um, you know, cause you know, serious use, disruption to users, et cetera. And when we come across those things, we have to flag them. We have to tell them, look, this is not a code base that we feel safe um, shipping software to just yet. And what might, sorry, I'm just really curious about Minefield. Yeah. It sounds, sounds a little scary. What's an example <laughs> of something that would pretty much make software Minefield? So what makes software Minefield is typically you can discover it in conversation a lot of times. Um, you ask, is there continuous integration? They say no. You ask, how do you, um, you know, how do you deliver software to production? And they say, we SSH onto the production server. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, you say, <laughs> uh, are there any tests? And, you know, they say, what are tests, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but those kind of questions come up. The good news is that most of the time, uh, minefield customers uh, can diagnose themselves. A lot of times, you know, they're not just hearing about these problems. They've got a team or they had a team that was trying to build and deploy software and things were taking way too long, right? Like a, a user feature that used to take a day now takes two weeks and, when yeah. they, and they have no confidence in their releases. You know, after they release, it's just kind of, all hands on deck because anything could go wrong. So these are, and, and by the way, this is, this was a central part of my career um, as a software developer was rescuing projects that needed it. And, and so I love it. I have a soft spot in my heart for projects like this, but the good, you know, so the good news is they know that they need it. You did ask before, what if they don't have the budget for it? That's really hard. And it happens yeah. sometimes, especially when we're working in the startup space, which is, you know, relatively common for us in New York, um, where they say, hey, look, we, you know, we had, you know, 200 grand that we spent on this team that said it was going to take six months. It's been a year and a half. We spent all the money and we don't have anything to show for it. I, you know, I really sympathize here. Um, in those cases, we really the the good news is that we really can make some some really positive strides for them on a shoestring budget if they will i don't want to say listen to our recommendations but if they're willing to make some changes and commit some budget to improving things uh, we can make a really strong case um we for example what the example like when i told you before well if you ask them how do you deploy? And they say, well, we SSH onto this server. You know, it's easy mm -hmm. to say, well, look, um, we can get you off of 
that. We can get you out of that. We can put CI, CD in place. We do use platform as a service. We do use Heroku all the time. Um, and we can get it to a point where at least release it. At least you can release with confidence, right? Um, at least you can get to a point where your existing team um, can show you something on a staging environment before you know, before it goes out into the world and you can look at it and you can give the yes or no, the accept or reject. Um, those kinds of things, you know, really fortunately, sometimes they just take a couple of weeks to go back and rehabilitate the whole code base could take a long time. And you have to make a decision on those minefield projects, whether to continue with what you have or whether to scrap part of it and rewrite it. Those are harder questions and those can be more expensive but you can make really meaningful progress quickly on even a minefield project. So I want to talk about some of the areas of a legacy application that you go in and fix. And I want to start with the code. So what do you look for when you read code in an application? You know, if you asked my engineers that, you'd probably get a couple of different answers. I think some people start with the tests because we are a test-driven organization. Um, some people start with uh, the database tables because um, they want to get a sense of uh, the data and the, the, the data architecture um, and perhaps the modeling. We work on a lot of different kinds of systems. And so each one, you know, if we're working in Django, might have, you know, a certain set of really common anti-patterns. If you're working in Rails, that might have its, you know, its really common anti-patterns. You'll see a lot of things. And it's and anti-patterns are something you can look for. You can look for a god class, as it's as it's referred to, right? Where there's some class that controls like 80% of the application and things just keep getting bolted onto that. We also use tools, um, both open source and uh, and paid for, things like Code Climate. Things like Flog and Flay for Ruby projects. There are all kinds of static analyzers for .NET and Java projects that can tell us what's the complexity um, of different parts of the system. Where is there the most churn, meaning the classes are changing really, really frequently, and mm-hmm. uh, and you can start to suss out in really just a you know we we do this often. So in really less than a, a week. Um, an engineer can get a really good sense of, you know, where the bodies are buried, so to speak, and, you know, what needs to be targeted first. What about infrastructure? You use an extreme example of USSHN to deploy, or maybe it's not that extreme. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe it happens a lot. But um, more broadly, the hosting situation, the CD situation, what do you look for in infrastructure that might need improvement if it's not there? You know, it is it is extreme, but it is also common, and uh, wow. and so I think, and again, I don't want to uh, I don't want to stigmatize it. If you know, if somebody is coming to us for services, right, whatever they may be, um, it means they've done something meaningful. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, ex- unless it's greenfield, and maybe they're just a brand new startup, then they're trying to do something meaningful. But ninety percent of the cases we see, you know there's been meaningful progress and we just want to, we want to improve on it. Beyond that extreme example, a, you know, a really frequent occurrence is that staging does not mirror production. And so things look good on staging. They're shown to um, business people on staging. They may be even demoed. And then we released a production and it's like, oh man, well, something went wrong because 
you know, the, the data is not the same on staging as, as it is on production or the architecture is not the same. Sometimes databases aren't the same. Sometimes databases aren't even the same type, right? There could be like uh, SQLite on one and Postgres on another. Sometimes they're just not the ah, same right. size. Yep. Plenty of cases where, uh, well, with production, you know, we we throw some some giant EC2 instance at it, and in staging, we don't. Um, and so you can start to see different issues. And so, and there, you know, I guess you can you can go on beyond that. You know, is there a CDN? behind uh, behind production is that, you know, you could find some nitty gritty things that are happening. But to be honest with you, usually the issues that you see are more glaring. Um, yeah. And and they're just a, a product of either somebody not knowing or not, not thinking it was as important. And maybe it wasn't in the very beginning, and it is now. So you talk a lot about people and teams and uh, process. Um, when you find yourself making recommendations about how people work or how teams day-to-day execute software development. What do those recommendations look like? I love agile software development, but I am of the opinion that that has become a really bloated term in our industry. Many people define it differently to the point that it's a little bit watered down. And, uh, and so we've moved away from saying, well, you know, this is agile and this is not agile. And we've started looking into, we've started just asking questions and looking into different people's processes. Um, because the fact is that, you know, a process that works um, on our fintech customer works totally differently um, in our, you know, our government sector customer. People and processes is, you know, it is huge. One thing that we want to understand is, is the the stakeholder or the person that is requesting our presence or requesting our services, do they, have they ever worked with a software development team before? Have they worked with an external software development team before? Um, Kind of start there. In the process side, we just want there to be a cadence. And so without a lot of ceremony, we want to know, is is there a specific time that software should be released? If not, let's try to pick one and, and say that mm-hmm. maybe we can release anytime, but we're definitely going to release every Tuesday at 2 p.m., right? Um, is there um, a time where we can do a retrospective or reflect on the work that we've done with the goal of getting better over the next period of time, usually one week or two weeks? Is there a planning meeting where we can look at write, edit user stories, look at our velocity, which means how, you know, how quickly are we, are we delivering stories and kind of target how many stories we think we can deliver over the next amount of time. Um, Just putting those things in place um, really helps to kind of put everybody at ease. You start to say, you know, business people all of a sudden start to get things regularly, salespeople that are asking for things, um, they don't get everything all at once, but they get a little bit at a time and they can start to count on it. Um, mm-hmm. The engineering team can count on an opportunity to refine and improve their practices in a, in a forum that is you know, free from uh, a lot of finger pointing and blaming uh, at a retrospective. Yep. And um, product managers, designers can all feel like they are a meaningful part of the process um, by contributing to the planning and to the, uh, the overall strategy. 
So if I'm on a team, Def Method um, makes some recommendations about how we work and we implement them. What as an engineer on a team might I get from this experience to help in my career or what I want to do? It really depends on how open you are to doing things differently. Some people are really set in their ways and they don't want, they don't want change. If, um, if you are looking to grow your career, then at the very least, if you come in, if we come in and you see us doing things a little differently, first of all, we're not doing it in a vacuum. So we're including you and we're asking your opinion and we respect your opinion because you've been there longer than us. So you know the legacy software better than us. So you're able to kind of see how we work in a collaborative, transparent way. We can give some really honest assessments of, of the software and where we stand. You'll also probably, you know, knowing our engineers, we are um, constantly learning. Everybody at Def Method has in common the fact that they are co- career learners. And so you might just, <laughs> even forgetting everything else, you might just learn where all the good meetups are nearby because we're going to them or where good conferences mm-hmm. are or uh, where there are good talks online or books to read because we've got sort of an arsenal of them and we love talking about them. That's great. So making it last, I'm on a team, you come in, I've maybe grown a bit as an engineer in this process. How do I help make sure that the changes you recommended that we implemented together stay? You know, you really have to be an advocate in your own organization. You know, if if you like what we have to offer and you feel that things have been better during our time together, then you have an opportunity to continue doing them. Um, but you will inevitably face resistance because as soon as we leave, there will be some amount of of the team that wants to go back to the way things were um, or go in a different direction or some business person that says, well, this worked great for the time, but now we really have to move faster and we can't do X or Y or we have to compromise on Z. So, you know, the best thing I can say is one, you need to advocate for the changes to stick. And two, you kind of have to build up within your own organization, people that also believe in the same things and want to do things, um, a correct or a better way. Um, that's your best chance for making things stick and making things last. Rewinding a bit, say I'm on a team that is building Greenfield software. We're making a new product and we don't want to reach a point where, no offense, we call you for for help with some serious issues on our software. Mm-hmm. What can we do in advance to try to avoid some of the legacy software pitfalls that you've seen? Right. Well, we don't want to call. We we don't want you to call us for some serious problem either. We, you know, <laughs> on a greenfield project, we want you to call us because six months later you say, "Man, we've got so many people using this thing uh, that we, you know, we need help building more capacity, or we've got a whole new class of users that we didn't expect that want to use it." So, you know, those are the calls that we want. Um, Absolutely. So uh, how do you make that happen? There are plenty of books out there on, you know, on keeping your software clean, on adhering to software patterns, architectural patterns. Uh, Some of them have been around for decades. Others are still being written. There are great authors out there. Um, 
but I think the, the, the best thing you can do is to continue learning yourself. They say the mark of a good programmer is that they look back on the software they wrote six months ago and they say, oh my God, I can't believe what I, how I wrote that, right? <laughs> like you would do it so much better now. You would do it so much differently, We've all been there. right? Yeah, we have. Yeah. And I think the humility that comes with that is important. Um, and if you can keep doing that, well, then that just means that you continually improve. So there's a, a lot of advice I could give here. Startups are, ch are really challenging. There's a real urge to move really quick. Um, you know, that like ridiculous expression, you know, move fast and break things. It's that it, it might be fine from a business standpoint. From a software standpoint, there needs to be constant attention and care to your software. Um, I could recommend some of those same tools, Code Climate and, um, you know, and others to kind of keep an eye on the, on your software, you know, to keep a, uh, a check on your dependencies, a check on, you know, the complexity of your software. And, you know, the biggest thing you have to do is continually make the time, advocate for the time to put into your system to make it healthy and to keep it healthy. So you wrote a book, The Well-Grounded Rubyist. I had a read before this recording, and I really like how you cover the philosophy of the Ruby language, why it is the way it is, in addition to how to use it. Um, would you talk a little bit about why you wrote a book? Sure. Uh, I'm flattered that you read it. It is not a, it's not a, uh, it's not a quick read. Um, but, uh, <laughs> thorough, <laughs> but it is thorough, you know, it's like a, uh, I like the word philosophy. It's a little bit like a textbook, um, with, uh, with a philosophical bent. Um, you know, this is how the Ruby language works and this is why it works that way. The key for my involvement with this project is that I did not write the first edition of the Well-Grounded Rubyist, and I did not write the second. I co-wrote the third edition. And so there's a, uh, a gentleman and, you know, Ruby star by the name of David A. Black. He's a close friend of mine. He wrote the first edition of the Well-Grounded Rubyist. And I, it's still, to this day, one of the most influential books in Ruby everybody, everybody I knew read it. I read it, you know, and the publishers came to him for a second edition. He did that. It was fantastic. They came to him to write a third edition and he said, no, thanks. I've had enough. And, uh, hmm. but I know this guy, Joe, and he might be interested. And so we started to collaborate and, you know, the things that I brought to the, to the process and the reason we, we decided we wanted to do another one was, you know, not only is the language changing, because every language is changing, but the Ruby language is changing in such a way and moving toward a more functional style. They are trying to, but not yet at a point where they can achieve real concurrency across the language, which would be an enormous benefit for um, a language that is dynamically interpreted. And so there are real kind of tectonic shifts in the language and in the the Ruby maintainers approach to, to language development. And so we wanted to capture that. And so in addition to updating the entire book to reflect the new language features and, you know, phase out features that aren't there anymore, I also wrote a new chapter that is just dedicated to functional programming in Ruby. And that's been a lot of fun to learn and to talk about and to, um, uh, and to put on paper. 
Listeners, you can get 40% off Joe Leo's book, The Well-Grounded Rubyist, by using code PODISH19, that's P-O-D-I-S-H-19, through Manning Press at manning.com, M-A-N-N-I-N-G.com. And uh, we've talked about a lot, Joe. I've really enjoyed this, learned a lot about legacy software and how to make positive change. Um, thank you so much for being on Codish. Oh, thanks, Corey. It's really fun to talk about this stuff. Um, I, that's why I do it for a living. And so uh, happy to chat anytime. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Kodish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.